0: All right, please pray with me again as we open God's word together. Jesus, when you explained your scriptures to those disciples on the road to Emmaus, their hearts burned within them. And Jesus, we pray for that work again in us this morning. We pray that as we open the word together, our hearts would burn within us and that we would um, dance home with the kidneys. We ask you in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. All right, so last Sunday, Taylor preached to us about the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, he gave us this great image for what it was like uh, for the disciples when the resurrection happened. So Taylor said, it was like they were given a priceless painting. And in order to hang it in their homes, they had to reorganize all the other furniture around it to give the priceless painting its proper place and focus, right? Um, So Jesus' disciples were faithful Jews, and they knew their Hebrew Bibles really well. But when he was raised from the dead, it was such a world-changing, life-altering event that it shifted around all their internal furniture, what they thought about God and how they related to God. But thankfully, it was Jesus himself who helped them with that work of reorganizing, and he started right away. On the very same day that he was raised to life, Jesus spent a couple of hours explaining it all to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. So we just read from Luke uh, 24, verse 27, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And that's a lot of things. Uh, wouldn't that have been an amazing thing to hear? Yeah. Jesus himself explaining the scriptures. If we had a time machine and we could go back to any moment in history and witness it for ourselves, I'd want to make the case that we should go back there and we should listen to what he said on the road to Emmaus. That that should be the conversation that we listen to. I've so often wished that clear path or the other disciple who heard it, had written it down, had written a book, and we had a record of what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus. And then as I thought about it, I realized that we kind of do have it. That's right. um, Because that's what the apostles are explaining in most of the rest of the New Testament. And we've had, we have now 2,000 years of Christian scholarship that's looked at the Old Testament from every angle in the light of Jesus and his <laughs> resurrection, okay? So today, I'm going to attempt something very ambitious. And I was kind of expecting there not to be many visitors today. <laughs> I'm very glad there are. Um, but this is not something I would usually <laughs> attempt. Uh, but what I'm going to do is try to recreate for you What Jesus said. So pray for (laughs) it. So like Jesus, we're going to start with Moses. And the first book of Moses is Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, the first humans sinned against God, their creator. They betrayed him, right? They did the one thing that he told them not to do. And they did it because they doubted his good character. And so in doing that, they severed their most vital relationship, right? Their relationship with God. They burned their most necessary bridge. They fractured their friendship with God. And instead, they allied themselves with God's worst enemy. They allied themselves with Satan. And because they shifted that alliance from God to Satan, all of their other good relationships were broken at the same time. So their good relationship with the land was broken. It turned from nurture and fruitful abundance into toil against thorns and thistles. And their good relationship within marriage was broken. It turned from loving leadership and support and became a bitter power struggle. And their good relationships within their communities were broken. They were poisoned by the shadow of death that ended everyone. So, the somber verdict from God in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19 is this By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But within that very same speech, where God tells them the consequences of their sin, he also gives them the first promise of rescue. Right? Because God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And what that is, is a promise that one of the children of the woman would reverse the alliance, strike back at Satan and deal him a mortal blow. One of the children of the woman, right? Hear that, the children of the woman. He would change the story. Not an angel, not an animal, but a man. A man. So next we meet Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. And the first thing we see them doing is bringing to God an offering. Okay, so their relationship with God is broken, but it's not completely alienated. They can still come to God and they can still relate to him. So Genesis chapter 4 verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So right here, very early in the story, in the fourth chapter of the Bible, we're introduced to this idea of animal sacrifice. that somehow sacrifice pleases God and it makes a way for people to draw near to God again. And that comes up again only a few chapters later in the story of Noah after the flood because the first thing Noah does when he gets back on dry land is to build an altar and sacrifice some of the clean animals on it. And Genesis 8 verse 21 says this, that when God smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. God smells the smell of the sacrifice. Isn't that a strange and astonishing thought, that he likes the smell? Um, but it's an idea that's repeated many, many times in the law of Moses. God tells them that he likes the smell of their sacrifices. And so it's such an important idea in the Old Testament that we should definitely expect that this kind of sacrifice, this idea of sacrifice, is gonna play a very central role God's rescue plan. So here's what we have so far. It's a plan that will be accomplished by one of the children of men making a blood-spilling sacrifice. The life of Noah also reveals the extent of the problem of sin. So Genesis 6 verse 5 says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And how did God deal with the problem? He sent a huge flood that wiped out all of humanity, except for eight people. It was the death that God had promised would be the fruit of sin. But in Noah, we can see that there's a glimmer of hope, that there can be rescue from such terrible judgment. So God's plan will be accomplished by one of the children of men making a blood-spilling sacrifice to rescue people from certain death. After the flood, the human race had to start over, but since they all descended from one family, they naturally all spoke the same language. And it's in Genesis 11, (coughs) the Tower of Babel, that nations are created. So the people arrogantly gathered to assail heaven, but God, in response, confused their languages and dispersed them from there all over the face of the earth. So here in Genesis 11 is another relationship that's broken and fractured by sin. So first we had the relationship between God and people, then people and the land, then men and women, then friendships between communities because of death, and now the human family itself is fractured into nations that are at war with one another. So if God's going to undo all the effects of the fall, he's going to have to mend all of those broken relationships. God's plan will be accomplished by one of the children of men who'd make a blood-spilling sacrifice to rescue the people from certain death and restore broken relationships. All of them. Then, in Genesis 12, we meet Abraham. And here we start to see some definition to the plan. Because Abraham was a missionary. Okay? He was a missionary in the technical sense of one who was sent. Because the first word that God speaks to Abraham is the word go. Our word missionary comes from the Latin missio, which means sending. It's also the word from where we get our word emissary missio, sending. So in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. It says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abraham was the first missionary. And God's rescue plan is going to hinge on someone going from a place of comfort and safety, from his father's house and out into the unknown wilderness to follow God. And at at the beginning of Genesis 12, God's command to Abraham to go comes with a fourfold promise. And it's a promise that gets right to the heart of the problem of sin because it addresses all of the broken relationships. So he says, go into the land that I will show you. It's a new country, a reconciled relationship between the people and the soil. And I will make from you a great nation Many descendants, a community of worship, security, and peace. I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. So that's talking about a reconciled relationship with God. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So reunification of the human family. That's reversing Babel, reconciling the nations. So God is indeed planning to restore all the relationships that were broken by sin, And we learn that he's going to do it through Abraham's family. So everyone knows the name of Abraham. He was one of the greatest men who ever lived, but there was one man alive at the time who was even greater. He's a mysterious man, his name is Melchizedek. Genesis chapter 14 records that after Abraham won a great battle against five kings, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Alright, so why do I mention that little side note? It's not a side note, because the book of Hebrews makes a huge deal about this encounter with Melchizedek. And what the writer of Hebrews says, is he makes the point that the one who gives the blessing is greater than the one who receives it. So Melchizedek was greater even than Abraham. So here in Genesis, before Levi is even born, and before there are any priests in Israel, we meet a priest, and he's a priest who's also a king, Melchizedek. And it becomes clearer and clearer through the law of Moses that the great rescue plan must involve a sacrificial role of a priest. Now, when Abraham met Melchizedek, he was still childless, but God's promises to him relied on him having a son, right? No son, no great nation of descendants. But the great heartache of Abraham's life was that he and Sarah couldn't have children. But God overcame that problem by giving them a miracle baby. Genesis 21 records that Abraham was a 100 years old, when his son Isaac was born to him. Isaac, the miracle baby. So he's the son that was born, and he's very important to the story. God uses the son to test the father's faith. He calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham did. He obeyed God, and he trusted God's good character, even in this test. And so after God spared Isaac, he said to Abraham, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore. The giving of the son was the greatest imaginable gift. Now, I'm sure you remember the way that Isaac was saved in that story. He was saved because God provided a ram for Abraham to sacrifice instead. Right? So the sacrifice still happened, but there was a last-minute substitution. Now, perhaps that idea of substitution is always latent whenever somebody makes a sacrifice, but it becomes obvious here The son was saved because the ram died. So God's plan would be accomplished by sending one of the sons of Abraham to make a substitutionary sacrifice to rescue the people from certain death and restore the broken relationships. Isaac was a miracle baby and so was his son Jacob And so was Jacob's son, Joseph. And in fact, there are so many great figures in the Old Testament that are miracle babies that it would make sense that the great rescuer would be one too. Jacob, as you know, had 12 sons who were heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. But the greatest of his sons was Joseph. And Joseph was a righteous (coughs) sufferer. He was betrayed by his brothers and sent to Egypt, where he spent many years as a slave and then as a prisoner. But God raised Joseph up and made him a king, made him to sit at the right hand of Pharaoh. So in the lives of these patriarchs in the second half of Genesis, we begin to get hints at the identity of this son of Abraham, who will bruise Satan's head. Probably a miracle baby. Maybe a righteous sufferer, and maybe some sort of priest or king. So now we're into Exodus. And it starts with the birth of another great son, Moses. Moses was another miracle baby, miraculously preserved from an early grave. And Moses was a missionary, again, at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. God said to him, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses' most significant identity was that he was a prophet. Right? We heard that from Deuteronomy chapter 34. He was a very great prophet. So here's what we heard earlier uh, in, the, in the passage that we had read from the very end of the Torah, the five books of Moses. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do. Okay, so these words tell us the two things that make for a great prophet. If you're looking for a prophet, here's what to look for. One, that he, that he knows God and, and communicates with God on an intimate level. And two, that he does mighty signs and wonders. Right, That's what Deuteronomy 34 says. And Moses did both of those things. And Deuteronomy and 34 says that there hasn't been a prophet greater than Moses, but that leaves us hungry for one that is. That there's going to be one to come, a prophet greater than Moses. And Moses was the great rescuer of the Old Testament, but there's still a greater rescuer coming. The serpent crusher would surely be a great prophet. Through the life of Moses, the picture of the great rescue plan of God gets much clearer in three very significant ways. Because through Moses' life, God accomplished the exodus, and he gave his law, and he built his tabernacle. Right? Three very important events. The exodus was a demonstration of God's salvation. Here's what it looks like for God to save. God demonstrated his mighty power over all the gods of Egypt. He spared his obedient children from death by providing a substitute. He brought his people out of slavery, and he led them safely through the dangerous waters of judgment. This is the salvation of God, and the victory of God. On the night they left Egypt, Exodus 12, verse 30 says, Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not someone dead. There was a corpse in every house that night. Either it was the corpse of the Passover lamb whose blood was on their doorposts, or it was the corpse of a firstborn son. It was one or the other. So God made it plain, again, that the lamb had died instead of the son. They were spared death by substitution. Once the people were safely across the Red Sea, God gave them his law. And the law contains all kinds of different uh, kinds of instruction. It has a moral code, and a legal procedures, and social arrangements, and instructions for worship, and feast days, and ways that God's people should identify themselves as his. But every part of the law points to the same thing, holiness. The law is about holiness. You shall be holy because I am holy, says the Lord. The law says that there's more to rescue than just being spared death. There's also new life on the other side. There's transformation. There's not going back to the old way. The law says that (coughs) holiness is possible. And not just possible, but necessary. So the law speaks a bright and glorious word to the people. Third, and best of all, was the gift of the tabernacle. Because there, God came to dwell on earth with his people in person. It marked a real restoration of their broken relationship with him. A reversal of the worst part of the fall. So in the middle of the tabernacle, in the holiest part, the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And that was the locus of God's presence with them. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was a sample of the manna to remind them of God's fatherly feeding. And also the two stone tablets of the Lord, God's most precious gift of holiness. So by the end of the Torah, the five books of Moses, we've been shown this much of the great rescue plan. That God has a plan to send one of the sons of Abraham, a miracle baby, a great prophet and maybe some sort of priest or king, to make a substitutionary sacrifice to rescue people from certain death, and not only restore his broken relationship with them, but also make them his holy people and to come to dwell with them in their midst. So Moses died, and under the leadership of Joshua, God fulfilled his promise to give his people their own land. But next, they faced another great struggle, And that was the question about a king. Without a king, the people fell into lawlessness, a cycle of judges who only managed to keep peace uh, and order in sporadic intervals. But the law and the prophet Samuel warned them against appointing a king over them. And the reason was because the Lord, their God, was supposed to be their king. But in the end, the people wanted a king so badly that they pressured Samuel into appointing one. And here's what God said to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So from these words, there's reason to think that God's rescue plan doesn't have any place for a king. But that's only until we meet King David. Because David was a man after God's own heart. And God made this startling promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. God said, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And the profound significance of this promise wasn't lost on David. He prophesied in many of the Psalms about what this king would be like. And one of the greatest ones is Psalm 110 that we sang earlier. So here David said, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So David looked ahead to an anointed king who was still to come, a Messiah, who was both king and priest after the order of Melchizedek. The king of righteousness, the prince of peace, the priest of the Most High God, whom David called Lord. So David confirms the guess we made from the books of Moses, that the serpent crusher would be both priest and king, an eternal king. On David's throne. David's throne went by succession to his son Solomon, who built the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, where God came to dwell again with his people. But after Solomon, the kingdom divided, and from there it drifted inexorably towards its final collapse and exile. But while the nation of Israel was falling apart, God sent many great prophets with many astonishing new revelations. So first, there were the two great miracle prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And between them, they demonstrated the kinds of signs and wonders that Deuteronomy 34 was talking about. So here's some of the things that Elijah and Elisha did. They commanded the weather. They raised dead children to life. They called down fire from heaven. They parted the waters of the Jordan. They made a jar of oil last many days. They multiplied loaves of bread for a crown. They healed leprosy. They made an axe head float. And they miraculously ascended into heaven. Surely, the serpent crusher would be an even greater prophet and do signs and wonders even more marvelous than this. Then after Elijah and Elisha came the writing prophets, the great writing prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel and Daniel. And my time's nearly up, so there's no way I can do justice to everything these great prophets added to the picture. But I just want to mention three essential points that came out of the prophecies of Isaiah. Because Isaiah refined the identity of the serpent crusher in three very dramatic ways. First, that his... Miraculous birth would be a virgin birth. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Second, the son would be king, and the king would be God. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So David David led us to this conclusion already in Psalm 110, but it's completely unavoidable here. The king is a son who is born of a woman, but he's also God and third isaiah gives us the missing piece that brings all the other parts together how the priest king is going to make a substitutionary sacrifice and that of course is isaiah 53. he was wounded for our transgressions yet it was the will of god to crush him he has put into grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's how the plan is going to come to pass. So by the end of Isaiah we come to this. That God has a plan to send his own divine son, a missionary from heaven, born into the line of Abraham, on the throne of David, a miracle baby, born of a virgin to be our great prophet, priest, and king. As prophet in the order of Moses, he will declare the words of God and perform great signs and wonders. As king in the line of David, he will execute justice and bring peace. And as priest in the order of Melchizedek, he will make a substitutionary sacrifice of himself, to rescue people from certain death, making himself the Passover lamb whose blood shields God's children from death and protects them from judgment that restores our broken relationship with God and makes us holy so that God can come and dwell in our midst. Hallelujah. So all these different threads and themes from the Old Testament join and collect together into a portrait of one man. One man our Saviour and Lord. And when you look at that portrait, there's obviously one person that it looks like. Jesus of Nazareth. So that's why Jesus said to them on the road to Emmaus, Oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Yes! It was necessary It had been necessary from the beginning. From the moment Adam and Eve picked that fruit. God was planning this for centuries. And it had always been the only way. Everything God had been doing in the lives of all his people pointed to this man and this event. So there are two things I want us to be sure that we take away from this revelation of Jesus. And the first is... That Jesus is everyone's God. He's not just our God. He's not just the Christian God. He's the Jews' God and the Muslims' God and the Hindus' God and the Buddhist God and the atheists' God. Jesus is the one true God. And even though many people don't acknowledge him, it doesn't change the fact that he's still their God. There is no And Jesus' death was necessary for salvation. Not just our salvation, but anyone's salvation. It's necessary. It's the only plan. There is no plan B way to be saved. You're either saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, or you're not saved. So we're not here in church this morning because we were brought up to be Christian, or because we like something about the church, or because we think it's a nice way to be good people. We're here to be reconciled to the living God who made us because there's nowhere else on earth that we can <laughs> That's the first thing. And the second thing is that this truth. Somewhere along that line. I'll have to speak loud. The second thing is that this truth needs missionaries. You sit here this morning because God sent missionaries, emissaries, because God said go, and Abraham went, and God said go, and Moses went, and God said go, and Isaiah went, And and God said go, and Jesus went, and God said go, and the apostles went, and that is why we know the good news and how we have been saved. The plan has never gone anywhere without people being sent. The good news needs missionaries. So when God says go, we go. Amen. Amen.